Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We have gotten a lot of requests over the years to talk about the drug thalidomide, including from Ginger, Cheyenne, Emily, Brittany, Randy, Rebecca, Hannah, Trisha, Jackie, and Terrell. And we've had some spikes in those requests at a couple of different points, including when this was a plot line on the TV show called The Midwife. We got some right in a row over the last couple weeks. Uh, This has been described as the biggest man-made medical disaster of all time. From 1957 to 1962, thalidomide was marketed as being completely safe, and it was used as a treatment for morning sickness, but it was not safe. At least 10,000 people who were exposed to thalidomide in the womb were born with a range of disabilities and medical conditions, and about 40% of them didn't survive infancy. The drug also caused a really unknown number of miscarriages and stillbirths, possibly tens of thousands more. A lot of the people who've asked us about this episode have framed it in the context of babies, but there are thousands of adults living today who were harmed by this drug. Many parts of the world, they refer to themselves as thalidomiders. As of when we're recording this in 2019, most of these folks are in their late 50s and early 60s, although as we will discuss, there are also people who are a lot younger than that. So people who weren't personally affected by this might imagine this story as something that sort of is confined back in the past, but it's really a story that's ongoing until today, and it's also a long enough story that we're covering it in two parts. So today we're going to talk about what thalidomide is, the animal testing that led its manufacturer to market it as safe and its release onto the market. Next time, we will be talking more about its aftermath and how it affected everything from drug regulations to abortion law. Um, there is some disability rights stuff along the way that is pretty appalling in terms of how people were treated, uh, and that's going to apply really to both episodes. Yeah, obviously not a lighthearted romp today. No. Just heads up, uh, as if you had not gleaned that already from Tracy's intro. So, thalidomide is a teratogen, which means uh, it's something that disrupts development. And teratogens can affect any stage of development, but the term is frequently used to describe things that negatively affect the development of an embryo or fetus, including causing miscarriage. And lots of things can act as teratogens, including hyperthermia, infectious disease, environmental pollutants, and alcohol. Pharmaceuticals can also have the potential to act as teratogens. Many countries have some kind of a system now for categorizing the level of risk and whether the drug is recommended for use during pregnancy. So in the U.S., for example, these categories range from A, in which the risk to a fetus seems to be remote, to category X, in which the drug's risks during a pregnancy outweigh any possible benefits. Today, drugs that fall into category X or otherwise have serious teratogenic effects are typically only used with a range of safety precautions in place. Patients who could become pregnant may need to have a negative pregnancy test before they start treatment. And they may also be required to use multiple forms of birth control and be tested for pregnancy while they're being treated. Since 2015, FDA drug labeling rules in the United States have required a section called, quote, females and males of reproductive potential, and that details these recommendations along with whether the drug has been shown to cause infertility. 
Yeah, the exact rules and laws obviously vary all over the world, but even with these types of precautions, it's still possible for a drug that's known to have these kinds of effects to harm a developing fetus. A doctor might not communicate the risks clearly enough, or a patient might not fully understand them, or contraceptives could fail for a variety of reasons. Especially in places that don't have a robust medical system, patients might share their medications with each other without fully understanding the risks involved. And especially because these same places don't often have the resources to really follow up and monitor patients, it's possible that babies may be born with disabilities or health effects that aren't ever reported or connected back to the drug. Even in places that do have really robust medical systems, the level of monitoring and compliance involved with this can really be a lot. Sometimes it is just not sustainable in real-world conditions. But none of these steps were in place when thalidomide was developed, and no one knew about its teratogenic effects when it was first put on the market. So we're going to get into why that was in a moment, but first we're going to have an overview of the conditions and disabilities that thalidomide causes in a developing fetus. So the condition that's most associated with thalidomide is phocomelia. That's when the bones in a person's limbs are shortened or missing. This usually affects the long bones in the arms and the legs. So sometimes it results in the hands or the feet being connected to the trunk of the body without a limb in between. Most of the time, these effects are symmetrical, with both legs or both arms or all four limbs affected, and the arms are affected the most often with thalidomide. Thalidomide can also cause a similar condition called amelia, or the total absence of the limb. Thalidomide can also affect a person's digits, including having extra or missing fingers or toes. Sometimes the size and shape of the bones can also cause the hands or feet to have a different size or shape than a typical hand or foot. The eyes and the ears can be affected as well. They might be missing completely or missing parts of their structures, and that can cause problems with vision or hearing, as well as blindness and deafness. These are the most outwardly visible effects of thalidomide exposure in utero, but the drug can also cause internal organ damage, including heart, kidney, nervous system, and GI problems, as well as damage to the reproductive organs. And sometimes this is not immediately apparent at birth, even after a medical examination, so these conditions are then discovered later in life. People who are exposed to thalidomide before birth also have higher rates of cognitive disabilities and epilepsy. Altogether, these and other effects of thalidomide exposure in the womb are known as thalidomide embryopathy or fetal thalidomide syndrome. Most of the research into thalidomide's effects was conducted on infants in the 1960s, and there hasn't been nearly as much follow-up from the medical community as people have grown and aged. So it's really possible that there are other delayed effects that haven't been widely studied or traced back to thalidomide. One exception is whether thalidomide's effects can be passed down to a person's children, and thalidomide's effects don't appear to be inheritable. These are a lot of different effects for one drug to cause, and many people have several of them. And that's largely tied to exactly when during the pregnancy the thalidomide exposure happened and what was developing within the embryo or fetus at that time. 
Thalidomide's effects tend to be the most severe between 20 and 36 days after conception. At this point in pregnancy, things are moving very quickly, with lots of growing and development happening in multiple body systems all at once. Just one dose of thalidomide can disrupt all of this, causing multiple negative health effects or disabilities in at least 50% of pregnancies. And some studies suggest that that rate is actually even higher than that. And this is why thalidomide's use as a morning sickness treatment affected so many people so dramatically. Morning sickness occurs in about 70% of pregnancies, and it can happen at any time of the day and at any point during the pregnancy, but it's really the most common in the first trimester. It's usually the worst from four to seven weeks after conception, and that largely overlaps with the window when thalidomide's effects are also the most severe and affect the most parts of the body. So we're going to talk about how thalidomide made it to market without anyone discovering any of this after we first pause for a sponsor break. Internationally, the pharmaceutical industry really expanded dramatically after the end of World War II. People needed treatments for illnesses and injuries that had resulted from the war, Multiple countries had started establishing national healthcare systems in the decades that were leading up to the war and then afterward, and that led to more demand for medicines overall. There were also breakthroughs in various types of medicines, including antibiotics and anti-anxiety medications, and those had also led pharmaceutical companies to develop new drugs very aggressively to try to compete. Sedatives in particular became incredibly popular as a newly developed class of drugs. The sedative known as Miltown was launched in 1955, and it quickly became the best-selling drug in the United States. Drug manufacturers around the world were trying to break into this fast-growing segment of the drug market, hoping for a similar success of their own. West German pharmaceutical company Chemie Grunenthal GmbH was founded in 1946 and was one of the companies trying to rapidly develop new drugs and bring them to market. In 1954, they synthesized the drug that would come to be known as thalidomide for the first time, and they applied for a patent. A paper describing the drug's pharmacological effects, including its sedative effects, was published in 1956. In that paper, it was referred to as K-17. 1956 was also when Grunenthal conducted some safety tests on this new drug. And one of the tests that was conducted is called the Median Lethal Dose, or LD50 test. And this test is conducted on lab animals, and it's used to determine how much of a substance it takes for it to become deadly. The LD50 is the amount of the substance that it takes to kill 50% of the test subjects. The LD50 tests for thalidomide were conducted on mice, and they suggested that there was no dose, no matter how high, that would be lethal in 50% of the subjects. Everyone thought this was amazing in terms of the folks developing it. It set thalidomide apart from other sedatives and sleep aids, which could be lethal at high doses, like an overdose could cause someone to die. Based on these results, Grudenthal started marketing this drug as safe and non-toxic. In November of 1956, Grunenthal began marketing a flu remedy called Gripex, which combined thalidomide with other substances like quinine and vitamin C. In 1957, it launched several versions of a drug called Contragon, which was thalidomide for use as a daytime sedative or a nighttime sleep aid. Gripex and Contragon were available without a prescription. The idea that you could just go to a pharmacy in 1957 and get a sedative over the counter, market it as a sedative, 
blows my mind just a little bit. Yeah, same. I, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know what to add to it. Yeah, there, there are plenty of drugs that have sleepiness or drowsiness as a side effect, but, like, if that's... In the U.S., at least, you can't just walk up to a counter and say, I would like a sedative, please, and get one. In many parts of the world in the 1950s, it was common for doctors to prescribe or recommend a variety of medicine to pregnant patients for the sake of their physical comfort and mental health. And this included sedatives and stimulants and other medications. The prevailing attitudes about both prescription and over-the-counter medicines during pregnancy was pretty cavalier compared to how it is today. And soon after Contragon hit the market, patients and doctors started reporting that it wasn't just providing restful sleep or a calmer mood during pregnancy. It was also treating morning sickness. Soon doctors were recommending Contragon for the off-label use of morning sickness treatment and prevention. Patients who had taken it were also recommending it to their pregnant friends and family members. I mean, people who took this drug described as being miraculous in terms of the difference that it made in the morning sickness level. But none of the tests that had been performed on thalidomide before it was released were conducted on pregnant animals. And even if they had been, it turns out that mice and rats aren't susceptible to thalidomide in the same way that humans and many other mammals are. Although there had been some clinical trials, no one in them had been pregnant. Also, the clinical trials themselves were very small and not very thorough. Testing on some other sedatives at the time had involved things like examining the urine to analyze how the drug had been broken down inside the body and how much of the drug was being excreted without being broken down at all. Nothing like this was performed for thalidomide. It also doesn't appear that these clinical trials were double-blind or involved any kind of comparison between the drug and a placebo. On top of that, the papers that were published to support thalidomide safety and efficacy read more like doctors' testimonials than research that was actually backed up by data. Vidikind Lenz, who was one of the doctors who made the connection between thalidomide and its teratogenic effects, later said, quote, the papers published in 1956 by Kunz et al. on animal experiments and by Jung on clinical experiences with thalidomide have so little scientific value that, in my opinion, they should not have been accepted for print. In other words, all this testing was not very thorough or rigorous or well-documented. Just one example of how it all fell short is that it later turned out that the reason that they could not find a lethal dose of thalidomide in mice wasn't because the drug was inherently safe. It was because the mice weren't actually absorbing most of it. Different preparations of the drug that were tested later on and were more easily absorbed turned out to be highly toxic. Based on thalidomide's success in West Germany, Grunenthal began working on distributing it to other parts of the world. It was ultimately marketed and distributed through various other pharmaceutical companies in 46 different countries under a range of brand names, including Distival in the UK and Australia and Softenon in parts of Europe. As all of that was happening, doctors in places where thalidomide was being used to treat morning sickness were starting to encounter babies who had a collection of health problems and disabilities that they'd never really seen before. In 1959, a gynecologist in Munich reported a baby born with phocomelia. There wasn't a clear connection at that time, but later on, the doctor learned that the baby's mother had taken Gripex while pregnant. This wasn't actually the earliest documented case of thalidomide having a teratogenic effect. That had happened back in December of 1956, before the drug was even on the market. 
This case was a baby born to a Grunenthal employee and his wife, and he had been given free samples at work, and their child was born without ears. That connection was not uncovered until much later. So at first, doctors were reporting what they described as this strange epidemic of phocomelia, but they weren't really sure what was causing it. As that was happening, though, doctors were noticing a different pattern in adults who were taking thalidomide. As early as April of 1959, pharmacists were reporting that patients were experiencing things like tingling hands and feet or cold hands and feet or a sense of giddiness after taking thalidomide. In October of 1959, a doctor named Ralph Voss reported neuritis or nerve inflammation in people who had taken Contragon for a year. Voss contacted Grunenthal, who told him, quote, no such side effects have come to our notice. Another doctor named Horst Frankel was also working with patients that were experiencing neuritis after taking thalidomide. He wrote a paper detailing 20 cases, but for unclear reasons, it wasn't printed until 1961. Meanwhile, Voss delivered a presentation on the neuritis issue on April 30th, 1960. In December of that year, a letter titled Is Thalidomide to Blame was printed in the British Medical Journal. It was written by A. Leslie Florence of Aberdeenshire, and it described four cases of tingling, cold extremities, leg cramps, and other side effects in adult patients taking thalidomide. These improved, but they didn't really go away when the patients stopped taking the drug. The letter included the line, quote, it would appear that these symptoms could possibly be a toxic effect of thalidomide. By May of 1961, Grunenthal had received reports of more than 1,000 cases of neuritis that were connected to thalidomide. The company was forced to make the drug available only by prescription. Before that point, it had been responsible for more than half of the company's gross revenues, and it was West Germany's most popular over-the-counter sedative, with more than 20 million tablets sold each month. Even after these reports of neurological side effects and after it became available only by prescription, Grunenthal continued to market thalidomide as completely safe, even during pregnancy. So we should note that even today, it is very common for a drug's side effects, including some very serious side effects, to be discovered after the drug is approved and out on the market. Even when they're meticulously controlled and carefully planned out, clinical trials are very small compared to the general population, and the real world has a lot of factors that might not be present in the context of a controlled study. But it's clear that Grunenthal's original testing on thalidomide was not very thorough, and the company does not appear to have looked into whether all these reports of neuritis pointed to a greater problem with the drug. And in 1961, doctors started making connections between thalidomide as used for morning sickness and the drug's teratogenic effects. One was the German doctor, Widukind Lenz, who we mentioned earlier, and he had noticed the unusual increase in phocomelia and other conditions that we now know as part of fetal thalidomide syndrome. He went back through medical records, and he found that this pattern had started very suddenly. He didn't initially know what the exact cause was, but he was confident that there was one and that it might be some kind of chemical exposure, like an undisclosed chemical spill or perhaps a new household product. Thousands of miles away, Dr. William McBride was working at a hospital in Australia, and on May 4, 1961, a baby was born there with both phocomelia and bowel atresia, which is a condition in which part of the bowel is blocked or absent. 
Thousands of babies were born every year at the hospital, but this was the first time in its history that a baby had been born with that combination of conditions. Two more babies with phocomelia and bowel atresia were born between May 4th and June 8th. McBride realized all three had been exposed to thalidomide, which had been on the market in Australia since June of 1960. On June 13th, he convinced the hospital to withdraw thalidomide from use and informed the drug company Distillers, which was distributing thalidomide in Australia. This was the first published letter specifically linking thalidomide to its teratogenic effects. McBride later told the New York Times that he also wrote to the company headquarters in London, but, quote, the reply from the medical director of the London office implied that I was utterly wrong. His high-handed letter implying that I was just a colonial annoyed me. I was determined to prove I was right. The following month, Dr. Hans Weicker documented 20 babies with phocomelia, five of which were known to have been exposed to thalidomide in the womb. But Viker had been told in error that thalidomide was being used very widely in the U.S., but that the U.S. was not experiencing the phocomelia epidemic that other countries were. He learned from Dr. Lenz that this was not true, and when he went back through his records specifically looking for thalidomide, he confirmed its use in even more cases. After his communication with Viker, Lenz called Grunenthal and was told to expect a visit from somebody in a few days. He told them that this needed attention immediately, that in a few days, hundreds more people could be taking this drug for the first time. Lenz also sent a registered letter to the company on November 16, 1961, detailing his concerns. Meanwhile, in Australia, drug company distillers removed thalidomide from the market on November 21st. It was only after all this that Grunenthal finally took action, pulling thalidomide off the German market on November 27, 1961. As word spread, it was taken off the market in the UK on December 2nd. On December 16th, Thalidomide and Congenital Abnormalities was published in The Lancet. Thalidomide was taken off the market in more countries in the weeks that followed. It was banned worldwide in 1962, although in some places it was not formally made illegal until much later. It was only after all of this that there was any kind of formal study of thalidomide in pregnant animals. Dr. McBride had actually tried to do this in Australia, but he didn't really have any experience in how to perform this kind of trial or access to the lab animals that he would need to do it. The results of this study were published in a letter to The Lancet on April 28, 1962, showing that thalidomide had similar teratogenic effects in rabbits as it was now clear to be having in humans. We're going to talk about the aftermath of all of this and about why the U.S. isn't one of the countries that we have talked about so far, after we first pause for another sponsor break. Between 1957 and 1962, thalidomide was sold in 46 different countries around the world, but it was never officially introduced in the United States. Richardson Merrill, the drug company, had planned to distribute thalidomide in the U.S. under the trade name Kevadon. Merrill submitted an application to the Food and Drug Administration. At that time, the U.S. did have some laws that were governing the drug approval process. That application was given to Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey to review. Kelsey was born on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada, and she had first started studying unsafe pharmaceuticals while she was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, and there she earned both her Ph.D. and her medical degree. 
At the university, Dr. Eugene Galing was trying to figure out what had caused the deaths of more than 100 people who had taken a drug called elixir of sulfonilamide. And Kelsey was one of the graduate students who helped pinpoint the cause as a solvent that had been used to add a raspberry flavor to make the drug less bitter. Kelsey was really new to the job as a drug application reviewer at the FDA. The Kevadon application was only the second one that she had been given, and in her account, it was given to her because she was new and it was supposed to be an easy one. The litamide was already being used in countries all over the world. It was regarded as completely safe, so really this process seemed like a formality. But when Kelsey started reviewing the application, she had some concerns about the litamide safety testing. A lot of those same problems that we talked about before. And after some back and forth with Merrill, she rejected the application on November 10th, 1960. Merrill reapplied. In December, Kelsey read the letter in the British Medical Journal about neuropathy and people that had taken thalidomide, which we talked about before the break. She pushed back on Merrill, noting that a simple sleep aid shouldn't be causing neuropathy and that a drug that was causing neuropathy could not be as safe and non-toxic as the company was claiming. This went back and forth for weeks. At one point, Kelsey met with executives from the company and, in her words, quote, I had the feeling throughout the day that they were at no time being wholly frank with me. As Kelsey continued to refuse to approve the Kevadon application, more and more information was coming out about the effects that thalidomide was having on the nervous systems of adults and on prenatal development. Merrill finally withdrew its application in April of 1962 as countries were banning thalidomide. President John F. Kennedy later awarded Dr. Kelsey the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service, and she was awarded numerous other honors for her work in drug safety during her lifetime. Uh, she died in, I think, 2015. So that was pretty recently. For her part, Kelsey insisted that this was a team effort and that her colleagues and supervisors should also get the credit. Even though thalidomide did not receive FDA approval for distribution in the U.S., the U.S. did have cases of fetal thalidomide syndrome. Richardson Merrill had distributed more than 2 million doses of the drug to doctors as samples, and those had been given to patients either as sedatives or to treat morning sickness. At least 17 people in the United States were born with fetal thalidomide syndrome. Richardson Merrill was also the company that marketed thalidomide in Canada, where it stayed on the market until March 2nd, 1962. It's possible that there were a lot more than 17 people because only about half of those folks' parents had gotten thalidomide in the U.S. The rest of them had gotten it while traveling, so uh, it's totally possible that there are a lot more people that just aren't recorded in that in that official list. Babies continued to be born with fetal thalidomide syndrome after the drug was banned around the world, including babies that were conceived after the bans. People who had bought or been given the medicine before it was pulled from the shelves still had it in their medicine cabinets. People who had not heard about the drug's effects continued to take it or to share it with other people. Some people had also just been given a sample of a few pills in an envelope that was maybe labeled with dosage instructions, but not with the name of the drug, so they might not have even known that it was thalidomide that they were taking. In some countries, governments and medical associations tried to warn the public about the dangers of thalidomide and urge them to go through their medicine cabinets to make sure they did not have thalidomide or any unlabeled pills. 
One person who was a big part of this outreach was Dr. Helen Brooke Tausig, along with surgical technician Vivian Thomas and surgeon Alfred Blaylock. Tausig was one of the people who developed a surgical treatment for the tetralogy of Fallot, which caused what was then known as Blue Baby Syndrome. That is on the list for another episode. Yeah, especially Dr. Tausig and Vivian Thomas um, in particular. In January of 1962, Tausig learned about what was happening in Europe, and she flew overseas to examine babies who had been harmed by thalidomide. When she got back to the U.S., she undertook an extensive campaign to try to raise awareness about the drug's effects, including speaking before the American College of Physicians and writing numerous articles meant for a general audience to try to warn people about the drug. But this didn't happen everywhere. In Australia, for example, distillers pulled the drug off the market in 1961 and warned the Australian government of the drug's teratogenic effects. But there was not a wide-scale effort to notify pharmacies, hospitals, doctor's offices, or the public about what was happening. As many as a quarter of the thalidomide survivors born in Australia were conceived after December 1961. In Spain, it took years for the government to formally outlaw thalidomide or to remove it from the official register of drugs. And sometimes, warnings used the term thalidomide while the drug was being sold under other brand names. There were seven different brands of thalidomide sold in Japan alone. Even in places with more coordinated efforts to warn people about the dangers of the drug, the first generation of thalidomide survivors included people born as late as 1964 and possibly even later. Because all of this traced back to a drug that they had believed was safe, this whole crisis led to just an incredible and crushing sense of shame, grief, depression, and anger for everyone involved, whether they had prescribed the drug or taken it or given it to a friend or family member. Many babies born with thalidomide embryopathy died in their first year of life. Those who survived usually had multiple disabilities that have seriously affected the rest of their lives. Which means that this whole crisis was exacerbated by attitudes about disability and the state of disability rights. The various countries where thalidomide was sold all had their own nuances, but in general, disability was more heavily stigmatized than it is now, and doctors approach the subject very differently than they do today. So if you read articles written about this crisis as it was unfolding, a lot of them don't even sound like they're describing human beings worthy of life. The default response, even among medical professionals, was often to see these newborns as a hopeless and even monstrous tragedy, rather than as a person who could live and thrive with the right care and accessibility. There were even cases, and suspected cases, of infanticide. In one documented example, a Belgian woman named Suzanne Vandeput admitted to killing her daughter with barbiturates dissolved in milk. She was acquitted in 1962. In many countries, doctors recommended that babies with phocomelia or other disabilities be placed in institutions rather than being sent home with their families, regardless of the level of care that the baby actually needed. My mom worked in long-term care for kids with multiple disabilities for years and years, and she definitely worked with kids who needed some kind of 24-hour medical assistance. This was not the case with a lot of children who were born after being exposed to thalidomide. Sometimes medical staff took newborns away from the delivery room before their parents had held them or even seen them. In a lot of places, parents who took their babies home did so against medical advice and after being strongly discouraged from doing so by their doctors. 
And whether a child was growing up in an institution or at home, most communities were far less accessible than they are today. And today there is still a long way to go in most of the world. Schools and other public buildings were not accessible for wheelchairs. Parents, teachers, and administrators had little to no education or experience in how to make a home or a school accessible to children with these types of disabilities. Prosthetics and adaptive devices had not really been developed for children. So, in other words, there were barriers everywhere. Physical barriers to being able to access facilities and societal barriers due to prevailing attitudes about disability. This includes thalidomide survivors who have described being bullied and harassed by peers and by adults because of their disabilities. The ones who grew up in care have often described feeling like strangers every time they visited their families once they got older. But really, this is uh, as, as full of information and heartbreaking as this is, simply the beginning of the story. The thalidomide crisis led to totally revised drug standards around the world, a criminal investigation, and decades of lawsuits and ongoing efforts to get access to necessary support and services. And we are going to talk about all of that next time. Uh, I also have a little bit of listener mail to close us out. All right. This is from Rachel. Rachel says, Hello, ladies. I listened to your episode on the women of the Civil War and loved it, especially learning about Elizabeth Thorne. So fantastic. But it made me think about how other women have played a part in military service. I've listened to your episodes on the Night Witches and the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion and others, but I really wanted to look into more Canadian history, seeing as that's where I am from, and I stumbled across the Nursing Sisters. The Nursing Sisters started out as volunteers during the South African War, but eventually gained a, a relative rank as lieutenants and then officers by World War I. They were nicknamed the Bluebirds because of their blue dresses and white veils, which I just love. And by the end of World War II, they had been renamed as the Royal Canadian Army Medical Corps. Another interesting fact, two of the nursing sisters, Meta Hodge and Eleanor Thompson in World War I, became the first women to be awarded a wartime Medal of Valor in Canada. There's a great Heritage Minute on this story, which I'll link below. And then uh, moving on to a more personal note, also, I'm not sure if you remember Momo, the historian hound, but that's my dog. And I wanted to thank you again for getting us through so many awful bats. I don't know if I could do it without you guys, so I've added pictures of her in too. Thanks again, and have a great day, ladies. That was from Rachel. Thank you so much, Rachel. Of course we remember Momo, the historian hound. Momo! Momo. Such a good dog. Thank you so much for this um, this email and for sharing this information about the Nursing Sisters. I don't know if they will make it into a full episode at some point, but in case they do not, there's a little tidbit about it about them for our listeners. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, and then we're all over social media at Miss in History, and that's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com. You'll find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever done together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.